Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Whether you identify as a Christian or not, Jesus Christ is, without a doubt, the most influential person who has ever lived. Did you know that Jesus never wrote a book, and yet there are more books written about him than about any other subject, and the best-selling book in history is written about him as well? Did you know he never composed a song, but more music is written about Jesus than any other subject in history? He never painted a canvas or sculpted a stone, but more art has been made about Jesus than anything else in the history of the world. He spent the majority of his recorded life closely interacting with about 20 folks, but today, over one-third of the global population identifies as one of his followers. Jesus never traveled more than 100 miles from his birthplace And yet you can find Christians in almost every city, town, and village across the world. You may not even realize it, but regardless of if you would even call yourself a follower of Jesus or not, your day-to-day life is different because he lived. We all use calendars, right? Whether it's on our phone or if you're old school, you still write stuff down. You might have it on your fridge or something like that. Well, the most widely used calendar for the last thousand years is called the Gregorian calendar. It's the one we use here in the United States, as well as the global standard recognized by the vast majority of international groups, including the United Nations. This calendar is divided into two parts, BC and AD. You know what those two things stand for? BC is before Christ and AD is Anno Domino, which means the year of our Lord. The world's calendar is quite literally centered around the life of Jesus. His life, death, and resurrection changed everything. This is a factual statement for all the reasons I just gave you, but I believe it's also true because through Jesus, each and every person has been given access to a full life. A life marked by grace and hope and love and joy, both now and forevermore. That is why, right here and now, we are officially kicking off a year in the life of Jesus. Throughout all of this fall and spring, from his scandalous birth to his resurrection from the dead, we will be taking a journey through the life and work of Jesus Christ. Now, we have been planning and preparing for this for a long time now. We believe it is a vitally important journey for our church family to take together. Because, guys, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, which literally translates to little Christs, then we need to understand who Jesus is. If we are going to call ourselves disciples, the ones who follow in his footsteps, we have to know where he walked, what he did, how he lived his life. I'm going to spend the rest of our time together right now talking about what this year will look like and why it's so important. But hey, if you're ready to jump in right now, go ahead, go to restoreaustin.org slash Jesus and fill out the form there. When you do that, 
we're going to mail you a copy of this book, which is called The Story of Jesus, excerpts from the scriptures. It just walks through the life of Jesus in more of a biography form. And then we're going to mail you this custom journal that will allow you to take notes as you walk through this year together and, and chronicle it because we really believe this is going to be a life-changing year that you are going to want to remember. You're also going to get invited to these special Zoom discussions we're going to have after each series throughout the year, five, six, seven of them throughout the year, where you're going to get to go deeper with me, some of our other leaders into some of the concepts we've been talking about. So if you're ready to jump in, go ahead, restoreaustin.org slash Jesus and sign up. But listen, if you're not quite convinced yet, I get it. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to hang around for a few more minutes and let's talk a little bit more about what this year is, what it has in store, and why it's so important. Now, depending on how much church background you have, you may know there are four books in the Bible that tell the story of Jesus. One from a guy named Matthew. He was a tax collector. He famously threw this scandalous party at his house for Jesus with all of his sinful friends, all of his tax collectors, and even kind of a, a prostitute woman came to one of the parties that he threw. And he is this famous guy who left this whole life behind to follow Jesus and become one of his 12 disciples. The next one is from Mark, or John Mark, as he was often called, who wrote his account based on the eyewitness testimony of his good friend, Peter. Peter was one of the disciples and actually one of the kind of intimate three friends that Jesus had with Peter, James, and John. The next one's by a guy named Luke. He was a doctor and a historian who also wrote the book of Acts. And lastly, we have the account of John who was in Jesus's inner circle I just talked about, those three closest friends, and then famously gave himself the nickname, the disciple whom Jesus loved. These four accounts are often referred to as the gospels of Jesus Christ, or just the gospels for short. Because this gospel means good news. These accounts were most likely given that name because of the opening lines of the book of Mark, his account which most scholars agree was the first one written down. It says, this is the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. Matthew opens his account with similar language. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, and goes on to talk about his family of origin. Now, what does it mean though, that Jesus is the quote, Messiah, you may have only heard him referred to as Jesus Christ, but it's actually the same thing. See, Christ means Messiah. It's not Jesus's last name. It's a title given to him. It means the appointed one. Messiah refers to the one whom the Old Testament authors predicted would come and save the world someday. This anointed savior goes back much further than the birth of Jesus. It even goes back further than the Old Testament prophecies I just talked about. In fact, it goes all the way back to the opening pages of the biblical story. Because here's the thing, and y'all please, please don't miss this. Jesus the Messiah isn't just the most influential person to ever live. He is the axis upon which all of history turns. He is the foundation upon which everything else is built. He is the main character in the great story of God and humanity. 
Our friends at The Bible Project do a better job of explaining all of that than I ever could in beautiful and creative ways. So watch this quick video, see what I'm talking about. There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, Avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil, and then it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back, and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends, and the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why, when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, 
not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus' power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. That is the story of Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one, the savior of the world. Again, whether you are a Christian or not, whether you have church background or not, you probably knew some of the basic plot points of that story concerning Jesus. You probably know that Christians believe that he was born to the Virgin Mary. That's kind of the, the Christmas part of this, right? That he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead. That's the Easter part. But as crazy as it might sound, my guess is that you probably don't know all that much about the actual life of Jesus, the middle Part You maybe know a few famous stories here and there, right? He, he turned water into wine. He fed the 5,000 people with just a loaf and some fish. He walked on water. He calmed a storm. But when I asked some of my friends and even fellow pastors to tell me the story arc of Jesus's life, they struggled to do it. Honestly, I struggled to do it. Because of the way that we've looked at the life of Jesus for so long has been the centering of the birth, the centering of the death and resurrection, and then a few stories in the middle. That's just an unfortunate byproduct of the way we were taught the Bible, a memory verse here and there, a popular story here and there, but not much in the way of understanding the big story or what the author's purpose was when they wrote it. It's as if many of us have memorized the first and last chapters of Jesus's biography, but failed to understand the rest of the book. We are familiar with his birth, death, and resurrection, but shockingly unfamiliar with his life. I believe that has to change. Because like I said a few minutes ago, the life and work in Jesus, of Jesus is the foundation upon which everything else is built. John makes this clear in the opening lines of his account using the nickname Word for Jesus. He says, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him. And nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created. And his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. Then in verse 14, he says, so the word became human and made his home among us. 
He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. Guys, when God wanted to reveal himself to the world he created, he didn't write a book. He became a person. Jesus is God in the flesh, God with skin on. We don't have to wonder what God is like. He has shown himself to us in Jesus. Paul later in the book of Colossians would say that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. This book called The Jesus I Never Knew by Philip Yancey is one that I will be referring to a lot over the next year. Uh, my fellow pastor, Matt uh, Gonzalez, gave it to me when we first started talking about this year, and I have just eaten it up. It is so, so good. It's so good, in fact, so influential for what we're doing this year that we bought copies of it for all of our Restore group leaders to help them guide our discussions in all of our Restore groups in the coming months. But in the opening chapter, the author, Philip Yancey, talks about this phenomenon of God revealing himself to us in Jesus. Here's what he says. God is not mute. The word spoke. Not out of a whirlwind, but out of a human larynx of a Palestinian Jew. In Jesus, God lay down on the dissection table, as it were, stretched out in cruciform posture for the scrutiny of all skeptics who have ever lived, including me. I love that so much. Jesus is God in the flesh, opening himself up to every skeptic, every doubter, every question asker, every single one of us who has ever wondered if God exists and if he does, what's he like? Just like he did for doubting Thomas. Jesus is God showing us his nail scarred hands and saying, I am here, I am real, and I love you more than you could ever, ever Imagine. Now, I don't know about you, but I need that. I need that right now. I need to find my footing on that Jesus-centered foundation in these uncertain times. I know that so many of us are wrestling right now wrestling with events around our world, wrestling with faith, wrestling with the question of where is God in all of this? Why isn't he doing something? Why isn't he doing more? For some, it's, it's the current state of our country and our world. It's led us to question what we really believe. For others, the faith that was handed down to us by our parents or childhood pastors just doesn't seem viable any longer doesn't seem to fit with what we believe now or what we experience day to day. And many of us have just encountered too many things in life that seem to conflict with our understanding of faith that we are considering just walking away all together. If any of that sounds familiar, what you're going through is commonly called deconstruction. It's the process of examining your beliefs to see which ones are actually true and worth keeping and which ones are simply the result of, of tradition or culture and they need to be discarded. The great Franciscan monk and author Richard War uses the analogy of boxes when he talks about this. He says, picture three boxes. The first is order, the second is disorder, and the third is reorder. We're all raised in the first box of order. We were given our explanation of what reality means and what God means. It gives you so much comfort 
that most people want to stay in the first box forever. But what has to happen, usually between your 30s and 50s, is the glib certitudes of the first box have to fall apart. Who's right, who's wrong, who's holy, and who's a sinner? I know these beliefs gave your ego great comfort, but if you stay inside the first box, it creates angry people, rigid people, unhappy people. When you leave the first box, though, it feels like dying. When I had to leave my early Catholic certitudes, it felt like a loss of faith. But that wonderful early evangelical gospel holds you strong enough to endure the second box and to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because it's in the second box, you realize it wasn't as simplistic as I, would, uh, as I was told, but it's not all wrong either. If God, if you can, let God lead you through the second box while hanging on to order, God can lead you to the third one, reorder. If you are someone with any kind of spiritual background or faith experience, you fall into one of these three boxes, order, disorder, reorder. So I want to take a few moments and I want to just speak to you, each of you in each of these boxes. If you find yourself in the first box, desperately clinging to a religious tradition that you know doesn't work anymore, and that continually produces the fruit of, of anger and rigidity and unhappiness, not the fruit of the Spirit. I want to invite you to step out of the first box and just, just put one foot, one toe in the second box. I know it's scary, but I think that if you don't, you're going to end up just throwing your faith away altogether someday in the near future because you will just at some point get so tired of the rotten fruit that it produces. I'm not saying that this journey is going to be easy, quite the opposite most likely. But I promise that if you keep showing up, you keep trusting Jesus, he will lead you through it. If you're in the first box, take a step toward the second. And know you're not alone, that you're here. You're with us. You're with a whole bunch of people who have navigated the first box and the second box and are on our way to the third. So just know you're not alone. Know that even when you're doubting, even when you're struggling like Thomas, there is a God who put on flesh to come and show you just how special you are to him, just how great he actually is. And just how, just how much he loves you. Take a step. Now, if you find yourself in the second box, in the middle of all the deconstructing, I want to encourage you to keep going. Keep moving because you are pulling out and examining your faith brick by brick. And as you do that, there comes a point where you will be tempted to just knock the whole thing down and walk away. That's when deconstruction turns into demolition and it's absolutely tragic. So if you are in box two, remember the foundation of your faith isn't what your parents told you. It isn't what your pastor taught you. The foundation of your faith is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that is a foundation that cannot be demolished. Those are bricks that cannot be thrown away. Like Richard Rohr said, 
let the gospel, the good news of Jesus, hold you strong enough to endure the second box. And when you're ready, step with me into the third box. This third box that Richard Rohr calls reorder is also called reconstruction. It's the process by which we build our faith system back up on top of the firm foundation, the truth of who Jesus is, what he did. This is thoroughly biblical as a process. Scripture even refers to Jesus multiple times as the cornerstone, right? Upon which everything else is built. I'm here to tell you right now that for a lot of us, unfortunately, the cornerstone that we were handed down from people, parents, pastors, whatever it was, the cornerstone we were given, unfortunately, it wasn't the person and work of Christ. It was something else. It was some other belief, it was some secondary thing. And then when that cornerstone inevitably fell apart, when you began to question it, because it was placed in this incorrect position of prominence, you began to question everything else. You pull the cornerstone out and everything falls apart. So what happens in boxes two and three is that you reassert the imminency of Jesus the importance of him as the cornerstone as scripture teaches. And if you're in the middle of doing that and then building back on top in that third box, keep pressing in, keep leaning on Jesus as the foundation and running every brick you consider adding to that faith house you are building through the person and work and words of Jesus. Because any builder any construction worker will tell you if you have a bad foundation, the entire structure is in jeopardy. Without a proper understanding of who Jesus is and what he does, we will not be able to reconstruct the faith that God longs for us to have. I want to say that again because it is really, really important. Without a proper understanding of who Jesus is, what he did, what he still does, we will not be able to build a faith that God longs for us to have. One person who signed up already for a year in the life of Jesus last week wrote this at the end of their form. I'm in the process of deconstructing my evangelical slash fundamentalist faith and mindset. And I hope to be able to explore and build a more honest and authentic understanding of Jesus. That my friends, that is why we are embarking on this journey together. Because like I said, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, little Christs, and we have to know who Jesus is. If we're going to call ourselves his disciples, the ones who walk in his footsteps. We need to know where he walked. And if a firm foundation is the key to building a lifelong faith, we must make absolutely sure that our foundation is Jesus. So come on this journey with us. It's going to be a wild ride. I'm telling you, it's going to shake things up regardless of where you are, how you understand everything, regardless of how you are reacting to this entire year that has befallen us in 2020, regardless of what you're going through right now, Jesus never leaves anything he encounters the same way he found it. 
Your life is going to change, I'm telling you, if you go on this thing with us. But it will change in the most beautiful ways. RestoreAustin.org slash Jesus. You know it. Go to it. Sign up. We'll send you the stuff. You'll get the Zoom links. We'll give you the resources. We'll do all of that stuff. And we will go on this year in the life of Jesus journey together. This graphic that we made for a year in the life of Jesus. I love it because did you know there are actually 59 different pictures of Jesus in that mosaic? And y'all, that's just scratching the surface. Every single one of us have a different picture of Jesus that comes into our minds when we hear his name. And I'm here to tell you, no matter what your understanding of Jesus is like, the real Jesus, he's even better. And when we encounter him in intimate ways, ways that you will encounter him over the next year, we will never be the same again. I want to close by reading you all one last excerpt from this book as we finish up. Here's what he says. Jesus was a human being, a Jew in Galilee with a name and a family, a person who was in a way just like everyone else. Yet in another way, he was something different than anyone who had ever lived on earth before. No one who meets Jesus ever stays the same. I have found that the doubts that afflict me from many sources, from, from science, from comparative religion, from an innate defect of skepticism, from an aversion to the church, that they take on a new light when I bring those doubts to the man named Jesus. Everything takes on a new light when we bring it to the man named Jesus. I'm so excited about this year, you guys. It's going to be incredible. I'm going to close with a prayer. I'm actually going to borrow some words from the great persecutor of Christians turned church planter named Paul who wrote much of the New Testament as I do it. So pray with me. I pray that from God's glorious and unlimited resources, he will empower us with inner strength through his spirit. I pray that Jesus Christ will make his home in our hearts as we trust him. I pray that our roots will grow down into God's love and keep us strong. I pray that we would have the power to understand as all God's people should how wide, how long, how high, and how deep the love of Jesus is. May we experience the love of Jesus even though it is too great to understand fully and then we will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think or imagine. Glory to him in the church, in this church, and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. I hope that you're going to join us 
on this journey, especially next Sunday, as we kick off our first series in this year in the life of Jesus. It's called Kingdom Come. And it's a look at the birth and the early life of Jesus and how he fulfilled so many predictions about this long-anticipated Messiah. It's going to be a great, great year. And I know, I know it's a hard time right now. I know this year, 2020, has been probably one of the hardest that most of us have ever experienced. So much confusion, so many issues. Most of us know people who have gotten sick, who have passed away. Most of us know people who are experiencing severe oppression and marginalization. And we, people of Jesus, cry out. We wonder, we pray, we wait, we lament, we ask God to come to move in our world. We ask God to come and move in our hearts. This year, as we dive deeply into Jesus, who he is, who he was, and what he still is all about, I am convinced that he is not just going to change you and me, that he is going to work to change the world around us through us. That if we will make ourselves available to him, that through his spirit, he will move in the ways that he moved when he was here on earth. He will lift up the heads of the downtrodden. He will heal those who are hurting. He will welcome people who have been ignored for so long. He will love people so well and call them away from the brokenness that they might be wallowing in to the full and abundant life that he wants for them. I can't wait to be a part of that with you. We're going to sing about that now a little bit, who Jesus is, what he did, and what he continues to do. So I'm going to turn it over to Taylor as she and the band lead us.